0: 9, beginning in the second half of verse 5, I'm going to skip over the hard names. Nehemiah 5, 9, verse 5, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. O may thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessings and praise. Thou alone art the Lord, thou hast made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. Thou dost give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before thee. Thou art the Lord God, who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. And thou dost found, found, didst find in his heart faithful before thee, and didst make a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, and the Amorite, of the Parasite, the Jebusite, and the Gergesite, to give it to his descendants, and thou hast fulfilled thy promise, for thou art righteous. I'll pray. God, again, just am grateful for this immense privilege we have to know you, to have your word, so that we can know you in truth, and worship you in spirit and truth. Thank you, God, for all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus, that he is the fulfillment of all that you require of us. And that now you just look for us to place our faith in him to save us and also to live this life, God, that you've given us. And I pray that we would hear your voice and respond, God, in gratitude and love and praise and faith and obedience to all that you say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, we're going to be in Nehemiah 9 and 10 this morning. But I need to set the stage a little bit by looking, if you would, turn with me to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. I believe it was Tozer um, that said, there is nothing more significant about any person than what he believes in his heart to be true about God. And there's probably no better way to know what you think is true about God than how you react when there is a crisis going on in your life. And that will really expose what your heart belief is concerning God. But God wants us to know him in truth. And the God of the Bible is absolutely different than the gods of the pagans. There is really no similarity. And so to reveal himself in truth, he said at the very outset of the nation of Israel's existence, In Exodus 34 6, the Lord passed by, this is in front of Moses, and proclaimed, so this is God revealing himself, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now, what I want to present to you this morning is that Nehemiah 9 is is principally um, the outflow of this truth here of Exodus 34, 6, and 7 that it is a recounting of the history of Israel up until the days of Nehemiah, which flesh out and prove the truth of these two verses. And this is, as I said, just so totally contrary to paganism's understanding of God. First of all, God says that he is a good God. The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. The pagans didn't know God like that. In their understanding, God was capricious. God was arbitrary. God was the originator of evil. And anytime anything bad happened in your life, you could just automatically assume God was doing it. That God was not good. God was the originator of everything evil. That is not the God of the Bible. God is good. He cannot do evil. Totally different than the God of the pagans. And then we find not only is he compassionate and gracious, and Nehemiah in the prayer of of Nehemiah 9 is going to repeat that theme over and over again. Six times Nehemiah will declare God is compassionate. Where did he get that? From Exodus 34. He is not only is he compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. You could summarize that just saying God is good. But he is also one who keeps his promises, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, and he is a forgiving God, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. So in his compassion, he is true to his word, And he forgives sin. And yet, the last part of verse 7, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. What that tells us, and this is, again, contrary to paganism, and I just came across this recently in my study, and I thought that's an interesting and profound observation. And that is, the gods of the world don't care if you are good or evil. They don't care. And you look at paganism and look at at idolatry and there is never an emphasis on personal holiness. Never. Never an emphasis on personal goodness because their gods don't care if you are good. All they care about is that you serve them. And so you can live an immoral life as a pagan and that gods don't care about your immorality. They simply want you to serve them. And so they want feasts to be, I mean, um, offerings to be offered. And if you don't make the proper offering, they get mad. They want their birthdays to be remembered. And if you forget their birthday, they get mad. And so all of life in paganism can be summarized in that life is going well or going bad depending on how you relate to the gods. But they don't care about you. They don't care whether you live a good life, moral life, or whether you're a scoundrel. They don't care. All they care about is themselves and how you are or are not relating to them. That is not the God of the Bible. So the God of the Bible is good, and he expects you to be good. That's what this is saying. That's why he punishes the guilty, a good God, who wants you to be good. In paganism, idolatry, he doesn't care. The gods don't care. You can be as bad as you want to be. They just want to be served. But the true God, the one God, he is good and he wants you to be good. It was Ian Thomas that says that God gave his son for you so that you might become good. You can't be good without God. This is why he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. We looked at that last Sunday. He's not saying that that they will be punished for the sins of their fathers, that God doesn't do that. Each person is punished for his own sin. But families will influence future generations. And that father, that grandfather, that great-grandfather, even that great-great-grandfather is going to have influence on the generations that are alive during his lifetime. But it's those who hate the Lord that are going to repeat the mistakes of their fathers and grandfathers. I was reminded just in thinking about the history of the kings, how you can see that God is not sentencing future generations to lives of punishment because of the sins of the father and just looking at the children that the kings produced. And so you've got a good king like Hezekiah who produces a bad son like Manasseh. And then you have another bad king, Ammon, and then you've got the best king that ever lived, Josiah. And so if this is, is something that is, is, is written in stone, that there's no way to escape the sentence of what fathers have done and grandfathers have done, then Manasseh should have been a good king, not a bad king. And Josiah should have been a bad king, not a good king. But clearly, each generation is making their own choices. This does not um, set that aside. This is telling us God is good, and he expects... Those, He expects people to be good because God is good. That's significant, and that helps to understand not only the history of Israel, but even the history of families today. How much do you tell your children when you are talking about your family history? Family history doesn't mean a whole lot today, um, but it means something. And kids want to know their place in the family, and they kind of like to understand something about their fathers and their grandfathers and their mothers and their grandmothers. And, you know, I remember asking my mother if she knew George Washington. Oh, yeah, I did, you know. And, 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 and they want to know how things relate and what the history is. And um, my, my grandmother, I, I, I remember one of our favorite fam- stories to tell as a family, at least mine, is that my grandmother, who married at 30, my grandfather, thought she was marrying a 40-year-old man. It was only sometime after they'd been married that she made the comment to her brother-in-law that her husband, my grandfather, was 40. And he laughed and said, who told you that? What makes you think he's 40? How old? And, and she goes, well, that's what he is. And, and she goes, hey, no, he's 50. And so he had lied by 10 years on how old he was. So that's a funny part of our history. But we have to be careful about how much we say, don't we? Because every family have some skeletons in the closet. I heard one person say every family tree has a sap in it. (laughs) 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 And and that's true. Maybe it's you. (laughs) Maybe my family would say that about me. And so as we relate our history, here's what we're trying to communicate. This is where, again, chapters like Nehemiah 9 fit. We're wanting to communicate to our children, to our grandchildren, how good God is, in contrast to all the mistakes that we've made, without going into all the details of all the mistakes that we've made, because there's a balance, and there are things that are age-appropriate, and age inappropriate, we understand. And we all make mistakes with that. But there's nothing wrong with the heart intent, not of you know, opening the closet to every skeleton, just for the sake of exposing everything that's there, but we want our children to know that the only explanation for the blessing that we're experiencing today is not us, because there is a history of mistakes but it is the goodness of God. He is a good God who wants us to be good. And that's what we're trying to communicate to our children. But in doing that, how are they going to know how good God is and how the good life that they're experiencing is because of his goodness without having some understanding how undeserving we are? And this is the compassion and the grace of God that you are living in. Wouldn't you hope that that's what was being taught in our public schools? We are blessed today, and we don't deserve it. Yes, there's all kinds of things in our history, and we acknowledge it. And the reason for blessing is because of God's grace. So we don't have to close the door on all the skeletons, but make sure that we're not just rooting out skeletons for the purpose of exposing skeletons and tearing down previous generations, but that we're speaking about these things because we want to emphasize the compassion, the grace, the goodness of God. So in Nehemiah 9, for the first, from verses 5 through 15, it's just one long recounting of everything that God has done. He is so good. And so we read in these first few verses how he's the creator. He's the God who has made this world, the earth, the heavens, the seas, and all that is in them. Glorious is his name. Blessed should be his name. Exalted above all blessings and praise. He alone is God, and he is the maker of everything. He chose Abram, called him Abraham, made a covenant with him. Now that's significant because this, this whole chapter starts with this good God Chose a man who was an idolater, by the way, and he blessed him, formed a covenant with him, and that becomes the basis for all of Israel's history, that covenant. God is going to keep covenant even if we don't. And then in chapter 10, well, let's make another covenant with God because we want to affirm how good God is. We want to recognize the covenant that he's made with us. And so what's the appropriate response but to make a covenant in response? We'll get to that later. And then beginning in verse 9, he starts this this through, as I said, through verse 15, one statement after another of all the good that God has done for Israel. And you can't read the goodness of God without also hearing the failure of the people. Verse (coughs) 9. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry by the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and all the people of his land. You knew, you know that they acted arrogantly toward them, and, the, and, and did just make a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and their pursuers that you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters, and with a pillar of clouds you led them by day, and with a pillar of, of, of fire by night to light for, for them the way in which they were to go. Verse 13, Then thou didst come down on Mount Sinai and didst speak with them from heaven, and you gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments, because he's a good guy. See, this is so contrary to paganism. You would never see anything like this. God is working for his people, not against his people. God is giving good laws and good ordinances to them, not self-serving laws and ordinances. Verse 14, so thou dost make known to them your holy Sabbath and dost lay down for them commandments, statutes, and law, through thy servant Moses, thou didst provide bread from heaven for them and for their for, for their hunger. Thou didst bring forth water from a rock for them, and all this is because God is good. Thou didst tell them to enter in to pour, in order to possess the land which thou didst swear to give them. Man, God is good. This is Israel's history. But verse sixteen, but, and this is also Israel's history and also has to be shared with the next generation. But they, our fathers, they acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. And they refused to listen. And they did not remember your wondrous deeds, which you have performed among them. So they became stubborn, and they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But... You are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding. in Sound familiar? Exodus 34. He's quoting from Exodus 34. This is our God. And thou didst not forsake them, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. What would the pagan gods have done at that? Wiped them out. Just wiped them out. But not our God. They committed great blasphemies. Thou in thy great compassion. Great blasphemies, great compassion. Didst not forsake them in the wilderness. Man, this is what I want my kids to hear. And it's so hard even today to know how much do I tell them of the great blasphemies as it were. And again, maybe you don't need to say, Just need to say, our family has great blasphemies in it and leave it at that. But we are experiencing the great compassion of God. Make no mistake, we do not deserve the goodness that we are experiencing. You didn't forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. Manna, thou didst not withhold from their mouth, and thou didst give them water for their thirst. Indeed, 40 years thou didst provide for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell, Thou didst make, also give them kingdoms and peoples. Thou didst allot them to them as a boundary. And they took possession of the land of Shion, the king of Hezbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. And thou didst make their sons numerous as the stars of heaven. Thou didst bring them into the land which thou hast has told their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered and possessed the land, and thou didst didst subdue before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and thou didst give them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. And it just goes on and on, one thing after another that God did. But, verse 26, they became disobedient and rebelled against thee. And cast their law behind their backs, and killed your prophets, who had admonished them, so that they might return, not so, so that they might return to thee, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore thou didst deliver them into the hand of their oppressors, who oppressed them. This is where God will not leave the guilty unpunished. When they cried to thee in the time of their distress, thou didst hear from heaven according to thy great compassion. The third time now this is mentioned. Thou didst give them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But, again, as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before thee. Therefore thou didst abandon them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to thee, thou didst hear from heaven. And many times thou didst rescue them according to your compassion. And admonish them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly, and did not listen to thy commandments, but sinned against the ordinances, and which, by which if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck, and would not listen. However, thou didst bear with them for many years, and admonished them by thy spirit through thy prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, thou didst give them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in thy great compassion, thou didst not make an end of them or forsake them, for thou art a gracious and compassionate God. Six times in these verses, the compassion of God. I hope you're seeing it. God, you're so good. We're bad people. God, you're so good. Our fathers turned away from you. God, you're so good. It's just the emphasis here is not on the sin of the people except to highlight the goodness of God. I believe there's a lesson in there. So I've been saying for how God wants us to speak about our own lives and about the lives that have gone before us. We have experienced nothing but the goodness of God, and we don't deserve it. So now his petition, finally, in verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Again, how many people, even Christians, would readily say that about our God? So many Christians are mad at God, disappointed with God. Remember when Philip Yancey wrote that book, Disappointment with God. You know, I'm just thinking, that says more about us than it does about God. How many of us can from our hearts, as Tozer said, say what is true about God? He is the great God, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness. This is our God. Do not let the hardship, all the hardship seem insignificant before thee. Verse 33, however, thou art just in all that has come upon us. For thou hast dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. This is why, again, I think the Lord so wants to impress upon us when even bad things are happening. And we question, we go, why God? Why me, O God? And God's saying, why not you? Do you not know what you deserve? Do you not begin to see what is in your heart that I see? And by the grace of God, none of us will ever get what we deserve because Jesus has taken that on himself. Bad things happen to us. God disciplines us. God brings us to that point of, of brokenness. And it's not fun. It's difficult. But no matter how much hardship comes in our life, apart from the grace of Jesus, we deserve hell. And we will never get what we deserve. When God brings discipline upon us, it is in justice and in kindness. Thou art just in all that has come upon us, and thou hast dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. What a testimony to give to your children. It puts all the emphasis on the grace and goodness of God. Interesting that he says in verse 36, Behold, they're back in Israel. They've been back in Israel for over 100 years. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you did us give to our fathers to eat of its fruit and of its bounty, behold, we are slaves on it. And it's abundant produce for the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. So even that they understand. We're slaves because of what we have done. Not because you're arbitrary, not because you're capricious, not because you don't care. This is what we have brought on ourselves. You told us this, would happen to us, and he did. Back in Deuteronomy 28, God said, if you turn away from me and worship other gods, this is all the things that's going to happen. No surprise. They've been released from Persia but the Persians are still their masters. It is still the time of the Gentiles for Israel. And Israel is still under the thumb of the Gentile empires and will be until Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom on earth. And it is because of Israel's sins. That's why Israel must turn to the Lord, must return to the Lord and recognize Jesus as her King. So then verse 38, Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of the leaders, our Levites and our priest. So that's chapter 10. And so they have at first, the first 27 verses, a list of the Levites, the priests, and the leaders. And then in verse 28, we're given the contents of what is in this oath, this agreement. And it says, that's spelled out for us in verse 30. We'll start in verse 29. Are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his, his ordinances and his statutes. And then verse 30, and that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So first of all, we're making an oath, God. We're going to keep your law. And what that means is, number one, we're not going to intermarry. We will not give our sons and daughters to the pagans around us. Verse 30, <coughs> Second thing, as for the peoples of the land who bring their wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy them on the Sabbath day or a holy day and we will forego the crops the seventh year and the extraction of every debt. We're going to keep the Sabbath, and we're going to keep the sabbatical year of rest. And then verse 32, we also place ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. And the rest of the chapter is about other things that they're going to do to make sure that the temple worship and the provision for the Levites is kept in place because that's something they had grossly neglected. So we're going to, we make a promise to keep your law, and that lo- will look like three things specifically. We're not going to intermarry with the pagans, that we are going to keep the Sabbath day, and we're going to support financially and in every other way materially the worship of the temple and the livelihood of the Levites as we've been commanded to do. So that's where they're going with this, and it's all because they recognize, again, the goodness of God. So let me summarize. This is not complicated. This may be a short sermon today. God is good. He is a good God, unlike the pagan gods. He is truly, truly good. Never doubt it. This was the first seed of doubt, the first lie that Satan put into the mind of Eve. If God, God knows that in the day you eat thereof, you will be like God. Paraphrase, God isn't good. He is withholding what He knows is good. He isn't good. You can't trust Him. But even more so, God is not capricious. He is not arbitrary. He is not the creator of evil. When bad things happen in this world, you can say God is allowing it. You can say God will use it for good. You may even say that God is disciplining you, but never say that God is the author of evil. He is not. He is a good God. He is a holy God. He is not the author of evil. Lucifer is his own creation as far as being Satan. God created Lucifer good. He did not create him evil. He made himself evil. The devil, by his own choice, God made this world good. Anything that's bad in it is not from God. Romans five is so clear on this: it is through one man's sin that death entered; that that sin spread to all men, and death came in and spread to all men as well. Sin and death are not from God; they're from man. God is good. Every good thing comes from God. And so every time we experience anything good, we should say, God gave this. When our dog died, we had the dog, great big lug of a German shepherd, best dog we've had for 12 years or something like that, and he died. Well, I personally don't think dogs and cats go to heaven. I know cats don't. Um, (laughs) That's going to make some people mad. I'm sorry. Um, But dogs and cats can be very good gifts. And we should thank God for them. And so I'm at that place where dog has died and grandkids love the dog. We love the dog. So we had a burial service for the dog. But I'm not commending the dog to heaven. That would be bad theology. I'm not thanking the Lord that we will see the dog again one day because there's nothing in the Bible that says that we will. But I can thank God for a good dog. And I think that's good theology. That's how we need to teach our kids and our grandchildren. Thank you, God, for a good dog. Eyes get a little watery even saying it. God is good. He is truly, truly good. You couldn't say it enough. I think if there's any license plate that I'd ever want in my car, it's just simply God is good. You can't say it enough because it is so doubted in our hearts. And he wants you to be good. And that's a good thing. How is that a bad thing? When your parents want you to be good, when they discipline you, that is a good thing. That elementary school teacher that time pulled me out of line, just jerked me out of line from the cafeteria and, and just hauled me back to the back of the line. I hadn't even done anything. I'm just standing there minding my own business. But she didn't like who I was standing with. And she knew my family. She knew all my siblings. And she appreciated something that she saw in us. But she saw something in that boy that was not good. And she saw a potential to impact me in a way that wasn't good. And she dragged me all the way back in line, and she says, don't have anything to do with that boy. He is not good for you. What teacher would do that today? They'd get in trouble for doing something like that. I didn't appreciate it at the time, but now I look back and go, thank the Lord for that. It's a good thing for God to want us to be good. He doesn't want us just to do whatever we want. That's a God of your own imagination. He doesn't want you just to be happy. That is a God of your own imagination. He wants you to be good. And that means moral. That doesn't just mean nice. It means moral, upright, righteous, that we conduct our lives as He is, so that when you look at us, you can see what God is like. We've been made in His image and God is good, not just kind, not just compassionate, but He is righteous, He is just, He is holy. This is all part of the goodness of God. And when anybody looks at a Christian, they ought to see God being imaged. And God wants it with all of His being. James says He, is, he jealously desires the spirit which He has made to dwell in us. James says that when we love the world and become friends of the world, we make ourselves adulteresses and enemies of God. God is good, and he wants us to be good. History proves this. National histories prove this. Israel's history certainly proves it in vivid color. But even our own histories, our own lives, our families' lives, as you go back from generation to generation they prove this. God is good. He by no means leaves the guilty unpunished because He is good. And every only explanation for the blessing that we experience is the goodness of God, especially when you know how we do not deserve it. So then what should we do? What is the response to this? Is it to make another covenant with God? And again, Don't hear me as being against covenants. Marriage is a covenant. and It is a good thing to enter into that covenant. It is a good thing to make those vows and say, I will be faithful. I say no to every other person. This will be for better, for worse, in sickness and health, until death do us part. Praise God, those are good vows. But let me give you a little bit of a history of vows. Joshua, chapter, one, um, uh, chapter 24 of Joshua, first of six examples. He says, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the, go- <coughs> the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Man, he's just challenging them. Do it, do it. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which are beyond the river, are the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Don't you love it? That's a man. You know, and he's not, and he's not, he can't say what's gonna happen in future generations, but he can speak about his own generation. We're serving God. You choose who you're gonna serve. Good for you, Joshua. And the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord, our God, he is the one who brought us us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites, whose land we live in. We (coughs) We also will serve the Lord, for he is God. And Joshua answered and said, you will not be able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. He's thinking of Exodus 34. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. What are you saying? God wants you good. See, God cares about how you live your life. The pagan gods don't care how you live your life. They just want to be served, period. Joshua said to the people, sorry, the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen for yourself the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, Joshua said, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst. (laughs) See, these people are about to make a covenant to serve God, saying, we're going to serve God, we're going to serve God, we're going to serve God. And they've got foreign gods in their tents. And Joshua knows it. Put away your foreign gods. Wow. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord, our God, and will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote all these words down in a book, which we have in the book of Joshua. That's the first example of a covenant beyond the covenants that God has made with Israel. 2 Chronicles chapter 15, Asa is on the throne, a good king. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. And get this, and whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. That's serious. We're going to make an oath. We're going to make a covenant with God. Anybody doesn't want to come and be part of this, we're going to kill you. Moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, with horns. And all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly, and he let them find him, so the Lord gave them rest on every side. 2 Chronicles 23, Jehoiada, who was acting as the stepfather to young Joash when he became king, Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they would be the Lord's people. 2 Kings 23, Josiah, the last good king, is on the throne. He stood by the pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart, with all of his soul, to carry out the words of the covenant that were written in the book. And all the people entered into the covenant. In Ezra, which we've already looked at in chapter 10, Ezra wrote and says, So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord, of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. And then the sixth time is here in Nehemiah. Here's my point. None of these covenants did any good. You wouldn't have six different times in Israel's history that the people are making covenants with God if they were doing any good. Nothing wrong with the covenant. The problem is with the inability of the people to perform. You can't be good without God. And you can have all the willpower, all the desire in the world, whether it's a marriage vow, whatever it is, you can't do it in and of yourself. And that's why all of this is setting the stage for Jesus. The only one who has been fully obedient. And it is only in him that we can be fully obedient to the Lord. Because all of our good intentions, as the saying goes, hell is paved with good intentions. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. All of our good intentions are good intentions, but they will, net no matter how determined we are to serve God, good Good. So what is the response, though, if our good intentions and our commitment is not enough? See, what the goodness of God, in light of, in contrast to our own personal history of unfaithfulness and treachery toward God, is meant to elicit worship. God is good, and we don't deserve it. And the only true worship is not expressed in commitment, but in presentation. Romans 12.1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He is a merciful God. He is a God of compassion and grace and loving kindness. It's as though Paul has that on his mind as he wraps up those 11 chapters and says, God is merciful to all. Praise God from whom are all blessings. Praise God from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because God is merciful, commit yourself to him. Make another vow, because we've seen how good the vows have worked all through the Old Testament. No. Present yourselves to him as a living sacrifice. Because I know, left to myself, no matter how good and determined good my intentions are and determined I may be, I will be just like Israel and renege on my vows. I can't keep my vows. My own determination to do so is not enough. Jesus, I know you want me true to my vows but you're the only faithful one. I yield to you. I present myself to you. And God takes us. And he promises to fulfill in us all that he requires of us. And the good God lives in us to make us good. This is why Romans 12 two, And you will prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We will be the good people God has saved us to be if we live lives presented to Him. Amen? I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for this history that you have not glossed over. Thank you for your wisdom in revealing to us exactly what we need to know. I pray, Father, that as parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, we would have your wisdom to know what to reveal, what not to gloss over, how to say it, what our children need to know, of how we have not been to you what you have been to us, so that they might see God that our hope is in you. And the sole explanation for the blessing and the goodness is your grace. We need your wisdom for this, God, to actri- accurately yet wisely recount our history with you, that our children would place their hope in Christ. Help us with this, Lord. We all... We, Know just, Lord, how the landmine it seems to be to to not want to destroy a child's confidence and hope, but to have that confidence and hope transferred to you where it should rightly be. And I thank you that you are a good God, full of loving kindness, compassion, mercy, that you are just And you don't just leave us to our own devices, that you care about us living upright, moral lives, because this is what you are. And I thank you, God, that you are more than willing and able to do, to perform, to fulfill in each of us all that you ask of us. In Jesus' name, amen.